Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 36 this morning of Luke chapter 9. I'm still figuring out, I really like the way we do our children's ministry dismissal. I like that we have parents, but there's like a two-minute gap in there where I'm, I'm never sure what to say, and I feel like I stand here awkwardly and really take my time drinking water. Um, so... Um, because I don't really want to start, but I, it, it, yeah, I'm still, I'm trying to figure, it's not, somebody else, it's probably like, it's not that hard, but for me, this is like the, the two minutes every week that I least look forward to. Um, yeah, again, we're going to be in ch- Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36 this morning, and I'm assuming um, most of you have seen, like, any of the Star Wars movies, right? Most of you have, have seen the Star Wars. If not, you're still going to be, you're going to be able to follow what I'm saying, but but if you, if you know in the movie Star Wars, right, when any of them come on, when, the, when it first comes on the screen, I just think when, the, when Star Wars opens up, it, it's a cool scene, right? Like the, the screen is black, and then, you know, and then the, you know, Star Wars just, you know, kind of appears, and this iconic, rich, and just sort of tense music begins to play, right? And all this stuff happens at the beginning of Star Wars. But then, like, what happens right, right at the very beginning is, is all these words then start scrolling on the screen. So every Star Wars movie starts with sort of the backstory of what's happening, you know, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and then, and, you know, starts to telling the story of how we got to, to the movie we're in, right? So there's this entire backstory being untold, and there's battles, and there's alliances, and there's a lot of worlds, and there's the Jedi, and the Force, and all this. You have all this history that I'm not going to, just so you don't know how truly nerdy I am, I'm not going to go through all the history with it this morning, but you have this tension and this story building, right, for, for a long, long time, and it's all about to be resolved in the next two hours. So you have this, you have this buildup, and you have galaxies, and you have you know, all these forces getting together, and suddenly all that fades to the background as the main event, the culmination of all, of all this stuff is the decisive event, and the decisive characters are now here. All these, all these worlds and all these galaxies are, are now giving way to the one main event to the main characters we are about to watch on our screen for the next two hours, right? So you have a, you have a picture of that in your mind. You can see, see sort of how, how that unfolds. In some ways, I think if you, if you have that picture, there's a picture of, I think, that the author of the book of Hebrews begins his letter with to the church that in some ways be, says something very similar, but not about sort of a made-up galaxy far, far away, but about what is of most importance when the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's one of those passages that just stand out as one of the, you know, just, just one of those foundational passages in all of Holy Scripture to say that for, for a long time there were many prophets, there were, there were many pictures, there were, there were many voices, but now they all fade to the, there's simply one, Jesus Christ. In our passage this morning, we get to see sort of an, an ins- we get to see that reality on full display. We get to get an inside look of, of how is this and how can this be. We see the prophets b- building and, and, and clear, 
sort of the, the prophets clearly building and pointing to one man in history. We see the law clearly building and pointing to one man in human history. We see history itself culminating in one man, the man Jesus Christ. Our passage this morning, we, we, we see Jesus as as the center, as, as, as the focal point of all of human history, what, what all the Old Testament has been pointing to and all the, the perfect moral law of God and all the promises of God all being fulfilled in one man in history, Jesus Christ. The passage this morning is rich in imagery. It's rich in Old Testament history and imagery. The, the 30 or so minutes that we're going to have to study it, will. I feel like every time we gather around God's word, we're barely scratching the surface of what it means, but I think this, I, I feel that particularly this morning as we, as we dive in. But we get far more than, than a history lesson this morning. We have a call for us to respond in light of who Jesus is, in light of what he's done, that we should be in awe and live for the one who has been revealed in this book. And that in light of who he is and what he's done, we have a call to obey him. So the main idea is very simple. It's, it's this. Jesus is God's son. Listen to him. Jesus is God's son. Listen to him. So with that, let's, if you're able, if you could stand as we read Luke 9, 28 to 36 together. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which, was he, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. You may be seated. Again, the main idea that we're going to be looking at this morning is Jesus is God's son. Listen to him. We're going to look at that through three points this morning. Point number one is why we listen to him. Why we listen to him. So verse 28 begins, and it says, about eight days later, about eight days after, say, after these sayings. Now, this is in some ways, part of just historic record keeper. Luke likes to keep record. He likes to give a, a pretty precise history. But that's not really the main reason he, he's telling us the timeline here. He, he's connecting this to, he, he wants to see a connection. Okay, Jesus, there's all, all these sayings, all these things that Jesus taught, and just about a week later, th this all happened. So he, he's trying to draw the connection between the two, that these, these events go together. So what had just happened was Jesus' identity was, was, was the most fully seen on earth that it's ever been. Like the, his identity was most known to those around him more than it's ever been. And for the first time, the disciples saw with at least some measure of clarity and proclaim him as the Christ. So there's this, been this question that's just been asked over and over in the book of Luke of, of who is this man? Who, who is this? Who is Jesus? And for the first time with, with real clarity, the disciples had just declared it. 
Now we see someone else is about to declare it. God himself is going to proclaim who Jesus is. But then after they see his identity, then immediately Jesus begins telling, okay, given that I am the Christ, that means I am going to have to go to the cross. And given that I need to go to the cross, my followers are going to need to carry their cross too. So what Luke is doing is he's intentionally connecting all that we are called to do as his disciples and all that Jesus did as the Christ must be understood in light of his identity. Who, all that, in a sense, he, he, we saw last week that following Jesus costs us everything. It's this daily death we must die for Jesus. And sort of who has the authority to ask us to do this? Well, this passage is going to, again, give clarity as a, here's who has authority to ask us and command us to do this. So we have stunning clarity about who he is and what he is going to do. So we listen to him because of what he does and who he is. We see here that he is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Verse 30, Jesus prays. The disciples are asleep. But what do they see when they wake up? Moses and Elijah standing with him. Now, this wasn't a mirage. This wasn't a hologram. This isn't sort of something that looks sort of like them. It wasn't just an old guy with a beard, right? This was, they are back on earth standing with Jesus. Moses represents not just the law, though he does represent that. He was the one who came right down from the mountain with the law, the perfect moral standards of God. Jesus made clear, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So, so Moses represents the perfect moral law of God, and he's standing there. But it's not just that he represents sort of God's moral perfection and the law. He represents the people's struggle to keep the law. When the law was given, their, their enemy was defeated, and they're now walking through to, into the promised land, but they couldn't get there because they had to wander in the wilderness instead of entering the promised land and enjoying God's rest because they kept failing. We see where people failed, Jesus fulfilled. And Moses represents that when his people were in the wilderness, a, a tabernacle, a, a dwelling place of God with man could be built, a place where God could dwell with his people. Though it was temporary, and limited. The book of John says Jesus took on flesh and dwelt or literally tabernacled amongst us. And one day we know that that will not be temporary but permanent because Jesus fulfills all that that was pointing to. Imagine being Moses for a minute, right? You, you've stood with God on the mountain before. Earlier, you, you had asked to see his glory revealed to you. But he could barely glance at God's back for a moment because it was so all-consuming. It would just be so obliterating. When he, was at the, when he was at the burning bush in Exodus 3 and he's standing and he's seeing the holy God, the Lord says, do not come near because where you stand is holy ground. Because where God is is holy ground. But here, Moses is standing with God on holy ground with the Holy One and is not consumed because Jesus did what Moses could point to but never accomplish. And so Moses is there to represent all that, the, the exodus, the, 
the entering of the, of the land, the law, the moral perfection of God, God dwelling with us, God leading by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire, of God giving daily bread and to manna from heaven sufficient to feed his people. And Moses is there basically to say, it's him, it's him, it's him. And then just as quickly as he's able to point out who it is, he fades. And Elijah was there. Elijah also previously talked to God on a mountain. Elijah was there to really be a representation of, of, the, of, the, of, of, the pro, of the prophecies of God, of the promises God had made. There's all these unanswered questions throughout the Old Testament. There's all these promises given in the Old Testament. One was after the temple was built under Solomon in 1 Kings 8, it says, but, God will but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Right, that there's just something that seems inconceivable, that a holy God would come and dwell with sinful people. So, Elijah represents the prophets. He represents the promises of God, the promises to send a deliverer, to rescue his people, to be a king over them, to have a shepherd after God's own heart leading them, to replace within his people hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, to destroy the enemies of the people of God, that God would indeed dwell with his people. Elijah is there to say and represent, yeah, yeah, it's him, it's him, it's him. And he, as soon as he says that, Elijah fades from view because Jesus is the fulfillment. And these three men are talking together. And when they're able to have the conversation in verse 31, we get insight as to what they were talking about. They were talking about Christ's departure, which is about to happen in Jerusalem. They were talking about his coming death and resurrection. See, Elijah and Moses knew who he was, and now Elijah and Moses are clearly seeing how he was going to do all these things. See, his fulfillment of all they pointed to wasn't just that he came from heaven, wasn't just his moral perfection, it wasn't just his law-keeping and being a promise-keeper. He, he was all that the perfect law and all that the prof prophets and all that the promises of God pointed to because he, he took all the shame and all the brokenness and all the fallenness of man upon himself on the cross. Because he, he came and he fulfilled for us. See, he's not just a historic figure who happened to fulfill all these things. He, he fulfilled all these things for his people. So Jesus came as the great fulfillment, and so it's one of the reasons why we must listen to him. So Jesus is God's son. Listen to him. Second thing, Second point I want to look at, look at is who we listen to. Who we listen to. So Jesus is the fulfillment. So we see here that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of all that the Old Testament pointed to. And this passage also makes explicitly clear exactly who he is. Again, throughout this book, one of the main themes, of, there have just been many people asking the question is, who is this Jesus? And a lot of people have answered along the way who Jesus is. A few have gotten the answer right, most of them have gotten the answer wrong, but now the answer comes from the only one that truly and fully knows, the one perspective that ultimately matters, God himself declares, Jesus is his son, my chosen one. Another way you could say that is my beloved. Jesus is God, Jesus is the son of God. So note Jesus and God the Father and 
God the Spirit are all equal in their godness. They're all equal in their goodness. They're, they're different in roles, but they're all equally God. He is God. He is fully God. Now, some level, because God himself declared it, we shouldn't need anything else said. We shouldn't need any more evidence, but he, in his kindness, gives us even more evidence of his nature. Verse 29, he's, he's praying. Jesus is praying, and his face and clothing change, become illuminated. The, the word he uses here for change is the same as you would use for metamorphosis, that, that it became something different. It's, it's almost like something, it's something of his divine nature like they had never seen before was seen. It's almost like he was unveiled for the first time for his true nature. But we, we need to see that the illumination, though, that, that was on him didn't come from some external source. It came from within him. That, this, that, that, that there was this, almost like this, his divine nature burst out for just, for just a moment so they could see. It was his true identity, his fuller identity being unveiled in some way. Because Jesus is the holy God. Moses, again, we touched on this, he, he prayed to see God in his glory. But no one could could see God in his glory and not be obliterated. In heaven, Scripture points to pictures of, of, of sinless cherubim and seraphim, which are these, right, they're the, the, the six-winged creatures that, that what they do all day is, is they fly around all day, and they're so powerful that their, their flight is so violent that literally their flight just, it shakes the foundation that they fly all day, and they have these six wings, and two wings are to cover their eyes because they cannot look upon a holy God. Two, two wings are to cover their feet because they can't touch the, the ground that, 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 that God touches. They cannot touch holy ground. And they, they do this all day, and they have to do this. They can't look at them. They, they, they can't touch the ground he's on. And they do this all day, not because of their sinfulness, but simply because of, of their creatureliness, because God is holy and God is transcendent. And here... We, we, we get a glimpse of that. And yet, in his mercy, they weren't consumed. They weren't obliterated. And they weren't consumed because of what he was on his way to Jerusalem to do for them. Then, it's like kind of unfortunately and cluelessly, Peter, Peter speaks. Pretty typical pattern of Peter I'll say before the book of Acts, that Peter should just not have, should not speak when he usually speaks, but he sees Elijah and Moses and Jesus all talking, and again, sign, keep your mouth shut, but he doesn't, he offers to make them three tenths. Now, in some ways, this was really, he, he just wanted to see this keep going, he is the desire to serve, to see more, and just linger, like, don't go, like, I just want to see more of this. And they didn't stay in tents, they weren't planning on sticking around, because their, for Moses and Elijah, their role wasn't to stay on the scene, but their, their role was just to arrive just long enough to show who and who alone belonged as the center of history, to make it explicitly clear, no, no, we're not three equals talking here. There's two godly men, and then there's God himself. He has the greatest identity. And then in verse 34, again, this passage is so rich in imagery, a, a cloud came over them, kind of consumed almost this cloud that came and overtook them. 
Now the cloud is the same way God would so often appear to his people in the Old Testament, a cloud coming that contained the presence of God. That's intentional, that, that, that here on this mountain, to, to draw your connection to the presence of God is here. To connect, okay, the God that we have been reading about for thousands of years is the God who, who, who's right now the God of the presence, the same God that was leading his people then, the same God that would appear to them then is the same God that is here today. He is God in the present. And as the three disciples enter in, they are, they are rightly afraid. And yet again, they enter, and they are not consumed. Because he, Jesus Christ, is the God who came to be with his people and near his people because of all he would accomplish for his people. Kent Hughes writes, Peter, James, and John saw up and close and personal the cloud that not even Moses was allowed to intimately view in Old Testament times. But now Jesus was with them. And so they could gaze upon the Shekinah, the, Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of it. Think of it. The Shekinah would be this sort of this complete awe at, at, at the presence of God. Think of it. This was the pillar of the Exodus. This was the cloud that passed by Moses as God covered him in the cleft of the rock with his hand so that Moses only saw the afterglow. This was the cloud that covered the newly finished tent of meeting and so filled the new temple, the new tabernacle with God's glory that Moses could not enter it. It was the same cloud that filled Solomon's temple on dedication day so that the priests could not enter it. It was the same glory that Ezekiel saw rise from between the cherubim to move to the threshold of the temple because of Israel's apostasy and then slowly, and then slowly, hesitatingly move over the east gate of the temple where it hovered finally, to be seen from no more. Jesus is the glory. This is, it's all to image, the same God, the, the same cloud that you could not, could not enter into because it represented the presence of God. That's the same God of the Old Testament is the God here in the present. And it's the same imagery we see foreshadowed of how God will return where it writes, where Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And so, so it's, it's, it's the, God of the, the God of the past, the God of the present. It's the same God and the God that is coming in the future. It's the same God. He is the God of all eternity. God, Jesus is the God of the past. He's the God of the present. He is God reigning and returning in the future. Jesus is the God of all glory, worthy of all praise. He didn't sort of become God in his lifetime. He has always been God, and he... His life was given in our place. So he is the holy God promised in the past, here in the present, fully seen in the future. And though we, he's already been revealed, in the future we will, we will see with, with clear sight. And he's on his way to suffer in Jerusalem because his holiness demanded nothing less and his perfect love demands nothing more. One of the, this is a small aside, but one of the, Maybe application questions is just one of the, I love the picture here of Elijah and Moses who, who just recognize, I mean, they, they could brag about all the things they did. They could have, you know, two men in all of Scripture that could sort of brag the most of all their accomplishments, all the way God used them, of all the, all the things they could do. That they just recognize, no, our, compared to Jesus Christ, our, I, our identity just fades into the background. Because Jesus is the God of all glory. How foolish it would have been to try to rank and compare. Okay, well, Jesus did this, but here's what we did. No, they just recognize, no, no, no. Given, nope. Our, our 
identity just fades. Our identity is, you know, it, it's all about him and his worth and his value. And so we find our identity in being able to point to him. How much more foolish do we look trying to build our identity around our accomplishments, what we define our life by, rather than we exist for one purpose, to point to the glories of Jesus Christ and to find ourselves in his story. So Jesus is God's son. Listen to him. Third point we're going to look at is this, what he says. What he says. So the passage ends, like so many others had, that they saw Jesus in his glory and they tell no one. They tell no one because you, you've seen this throughout the book that Jesus was on his way to suffer and to die. And if others had seen his real identity and real purpose, they would have tried to prevent it. That would have not been the right moment for him to give his life for us. But after he suffered and died and rose from the grave, indeed they did tell. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So though they told no one that day, eventually they would tell because a glimpse of the glory of Jesus doesn't just define sort of, it doesn't just define Jesus' identity, it defines their and becomes our purpose as well when we see Jesus for who he is. I already saw Peter spoke in this passage, but the greatest voice heard in this passage was the voice of God himself, the ultimate authority, speaking of Christ and his authority. When in verse 35 he says, this is my son, this is my beloved, this is my chosen one. Now, some interesting is, he, he said something else, but he shouldn't have had to say what he was going to say next, right? Given who Jesus is, Jesus all, given all that Jesus accomplished, given that Jesus is, is, is God himself, he shouldn't have to give instructions on, so we need to listen to him, so we need to obey him, right? Because it shouldn't even be implied. It should just be so obvious to us, right? Of course we'll listen to him. Of course we'll obey him. Of course we'll, we'll fall down and, and, and worship him and live our lives in reference to him, in, in reverence to him. I mean, that should be a given. That should be assumed. But he still says, he still tells us, listen to him we need to note that we're the only ones needing to be told this. In creation, God spoke and everything simply was. Throughout the book of Luke, Jesus spoke to death and life came and spoke to a storm and peace came. He spoke to disease and healing came. He spoke to a demon and they were cast out. He spoke to the sinner and there was forgiveness. Everyone he spoke to recognizes the authority of his voice and immediately obeys. But we need to be told because sinful humanity has a way of not listening to his voice because our sin nature makes it that our instinct is rebellion, not obedience, when Jesus Christ speaks. So he makes it clear, listen to him. Sinful human has a, a lot of voices that can live in their head. He's making it clear to us, but only one is
is of ultimate authority. For those disciples that day and for those back then, there were a lot of voices speaking. There was their own logic of just, how does this all, how can this be? There's fear and uncertainty and doubts. There's the religious leaders, there's the crowd. They're all vying to be voices to listen to. But there's only one whose word is the greatest and they saw it that day. Now they still sinned, they still stumbled along the way, but his voice became the voice that they followed after. Actually, in your life, whose voice is the loudest? Culture's voice, the enemy has a voice, your own thoughts have a voice, the opinions of others have a voice, circumstances try to give voice, trials have a voice, your past has a voice that all these things try to try to speak to us we must recognize that one voice matters one voice is ultimate that there's only one that we've been lovingly commanded by god himself to listen to him so we must listen to him we, we, we must we must we must listen to what he says about the nature of salvation that culture is confused but we must recognize jesus christ is very clear about salvation when he says in john 14 6 jesus said to him i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me that jesus is very clear about how one is saved but it's not just about salvation for for every area of our life we read this earlier this morning but he says in john 10 i am the good shepherd i know my own and my own know me just as my, the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. He speaks to his people. He brings comfort and leadership and power and hope to his people that we must listen to him. So in those moments where you hear the voice of, I am so powerless, I am, I, 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 and it would just be better if Jesus was here right now and just, just, just did everything because I, I have no power. You want to listen to his voice for what he spoke in John 14 when he says, I will ask the Father. and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. When the, there's a voice in your ear saying, hey, you know, your sin, not that big of a deal. Just don't, don't worry about it. You need to listen to his voice, what he says in Luke 13. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you all likewise perish. But if you're someone who has repented and you struggle to know his disposition, what, what's his heart towards us when we do repent? Does he banish us until we've passed enough tests of contrition? Jesus told us this story in Luke 15. He tells the story of a wayward son who said, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But he, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, I have, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. If you aren't sure, if you are 
personally known and loved by God. Jesus tells us a story earlier in that chapter where he says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he gathers, calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. So we need to recognize that the voice of Jesus is the voice that defines reality. It's the voice that's true in the midst of, of all these other voices. When we ever hear a voice saying, I wonder if this all matters. Does God, does God really see all your labor, your toil, your daily faithfulness, the way you try to live for him, but it that doesn't feel to be making an obvious effect? That, that does he see your, your just daily effort to be faithfulness. It's Jesus who says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Praying for names in the back. I don't know if you ever had this thought. Does God, does God really see him? Does he, does he care for them? That this person I'm praying for, my classmate, my neighbor, my family member, does God, does God really care? Told us this story and Luke 15, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over a sinner who repents. And before the angels of God means God himself not that the angels are rejoicing, it's they're watching the celebration of God himself because a sinner who found life in repentance. When you have doubts about your future, you have doubts about, well, Jesus, will you really fulfill all you said you will do? Book of Revelation, chapter 22, closes this way. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Which is not a prediction, but it is a promise from the greatest of authorities. Actually, Jesus never makes predictions. He only always makes promises. The, the world, our minds, our lives, there, there's so many voices. There's so many claims. Our emotions and the enemy and our circumstances and our trials and our joys and our longings. But there's one voice that must stand out. There's one voice that is true. There's one voice that we've been lovingly commanded to listen to him. So we listen to him. We, we pray. We, we read this book. Just to be clear, every word of this book not just the ones in red letters. Every word of this book is him speaking to us by his word. So we listen to him. So let's be those who don't just know who he is and know his identity and know what he's done, but those who listen to his voice. Jesus is God's son. Listen to him. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to be those who ever increasingly in our lives all these other voices fade away all these other 
half-truths and lies and just things vying for our attention would fade away. And we listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, the Holy God, who suffered and died and who gave up His life for His people and then rose victorious over the grave and sent His Spirit so that we can daily hear Him and see Him, so that we can daily walk with Him and hear His voice as He leads us. Lord, would other voices in our lives increasingly fade? And would we ever more fully find that the voice of Jesus is the one we listen to and live for and long for? Say this in Jesus' name. Amen.